Welcome. If you're just joining us online for the first time or you're here today for the first time, we're so glad you could join us. Been coming for a long time. Also glad that you could be with us here as well. Uh, we are, it is December. It is time to enter into the Christmas season, as Shannon said, and we are excited to enter into a, a new series as we look at Jesus and his incarnation of his coming uh, to be coming to earth 2,000 years ago. And as we enter December, just one brief thing, as Shannon mentioned on the, the, the living generously thing, just a, a reminder for us. As we enter into the month of December, the end of the year, for us here at Northview and well, a lot of churches, at the end of the year, uh, our December giving just with our budget, we are so grateful for all the generosity of people. The, the last year that we are like right at budget for, for this year, which has been a, obviously a, a, a difficult time as we've throughout the transition, all that God has done and bringing new people and all sorts of wonderful things that's happened in the season. We're right there at the budget, but for every December is a time where the budget's almost doubled from month of December. Is that just all the way the finances work every single year? So please uh, seek the Lord if this is a time for, for you to give. You're not normally giving, and if you are giving, please ask the Lord what it means for this month and uh, with any excess or what even out of sacrificially, whatever God has done, we would ask that you just consider as um, we're trusting the Lord to provide all we need for this month. Amen. All right, so we are in December heading into this series called Noel, He is Born. And Noel is kind of a, a funny word because we sing about it at Christmas. There's a lot of famous songs with that word in it. But it's something that I know growing up, I had no idea what it meant. I just thought it meant Christmas. Uh, no idea. And I, I would guess I want to ask people because a lot of us probably have no idea. And uh, I actually, a while back, had to go and look. What does Noel actually mean? And Noel comes actually a little bit complicated because it comes from two words that are not in English. The first, the French version of that is novella, which means news. And after that, you have even older, the Latin form of that, which simply means birth. So Noel, really what it means is the news of Christ's birth. And that reminds me of another word we have about good news, and that's the gospel. Right? So the Noel is basically the gospel. It's, it's Christ being born and coming to earth. And there's no better time of the year for us to talk about the gospel than at the time of Christmas here in December. As we enter into this Christmas season and we get to proclaim Noel, the news of Christ's birth and what that means. The gospel is the most beautiful thing that we have, is, is the reality of Christ and who he is. And yet, uh, for, for so many Christians, if you were to ask them to explain what is the gospel, and I've done this hundreds of times with people over the years, and say in, in 30 sec seconds, give me a rundown of what is the gospel message, uh, the vast majority of Christians will begin and say something like, you know, that we are sinners, we, we deserve hell, and Jesus came to take our sin and give us eternal life so we can live eternally in heaven. And the emphasis on that is placed on the fact that we are sinners going to hell and Jesus takes our sins so we can go to heaven. And it's a, it's a Sunday school answer that most of us learned if we grew up in the church at a very young age. And it's that, that Jesus takes our sin and, and as a result we get to go to heaven. There's this transaction that happens. And, and, as, and most Christians over the years, even into our later years, we never take time to reassess, is that really the full picture? And while it's a true statement, it's woefully incomplete when we look at the gospel message of Jesus. And it's not really that good of news in that basic form of it to begin with. And, and results so many kids and adults who grow up on that message, that this transaction, that it starts with the fall and, and how sinful we are and God's anger against sin, they learn that Christianity is all about avoiding sin and just trying to get to heaven when we die. And that story, Jesus, is just a means to an end. Right? Jesus is like a, a magic pill to cure cancer, and, and that's what he is. We use Jesus to get heaven, to pay for our sin, and he's our ticket to heaven. 
And therefore, so many Christians today live lives that are exhausting and guilt-ridden as they're trying to earn their way to heaven, or they spend much of their life just trying to hate sin more and more and more and more so they can try to earn that favor that, that given, God has given them. Or they become really judgmental or proud, and they just spend their life judging other people for why they're off in their understanding in some way. And some people maybe go the opposite direction. They just say, well, if Jesus has done it all and I got my ticket to heaven, then why does any of it matter? I don't care. I can just live my life the way I want to live. I got my ticket to heaven. I can just do the bare minimum requirements to get in. When the good news of Jesus and his birth primarily becomes a transaction of Jesus pays for my sins so I can go to heaven, we miss out on so much of what he created us for. And the consequences of it are devastating. And they're seen all around us of so many Christians that, that fall into one of those camps, whether, whether they're exhausted and miserable, or maybe they're legalistic and judgmental, or, or maybe the opposite of that. They live no differently than anyone else in the world. And, and they just maybe, except for they wear a cross when they do what they do, or they go to church a few times a year, or even maybe more than that. But that is not the good news of Jesus. That is not Noel proclaiming who Christ is. I would never understand how it is, and yet I did this for years because it's the way I was taught as a child. I will never understand how we can begin telling the story of Jesus in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall and that we are sinners going to hell. Because that's not where God starts his story. That's not where we should start telling his story either. And so that's what we want to talk about today because in my opinion... One of the most important truths we can ever talk about as Christians, and one that I will continue to preach again and again and again and again and again, is the gospel story and where it begins with Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. The good news of Jesus, the good news of his birth, of who he is and what he did, and to do that we have to start and talk about where did Jesus come from, and that's the title of today's message, Where Did Jesus Come From? And by that, I don't mean in Nazareth or in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, but way before that, even before Genesis chapter 1-1, before in the beginning. Because Jesus was born as a baby 2,000 years ago in a little town called Bethlehem, but he, and he lived this entirely human life we'll be talking more about, just like one of us. But Jesus, the Son of God, existed before he was born here on earth. In fact, there's no time when Jesus did not exist. He was here before creation, before time existed. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's opening scriptures of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. But what about before in the beginning? Well, before that. And how do we know? Where does Jesus come from? Well, Gospel of John opens up in John chapter 1, 1, of kind of summarizing that, pers- that verse in Galatians, or sorry, Genesis, and gives us a better picture. John says this, in the beginning was the Word, and he's referring to Jesus here, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was with God, and he is God. Number verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, through him, Jesus... <coughs> All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus has made all of creation. In him, Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So John tells us that before Genesis 1-1, before in the beginning, Jesus was with the Father and the Spirit. 
And we know this was before Genesis 1-1 because verse 3 says that all things were created by Jesus. Therefore, Jesus pre-exists creation. So Jesus has existed for all time as the Son of God, with the Father, and with the Holy Spirit, and what is otherwise known as the Trinity. So to know where Jesus came from, we have to know a bit about the Trinity. And I know I've touched on this before, but I want to come back to this again, because there are a few things more important to us as Christians than understanding the reality of who God is, and what you're seeing in the Trinity. So I'm going to take a few minutes to lay this foundation to what is one of the most incredible messages in all of Scripture. And again, I, want, I don't want to make any assumptions of what people know of what is going on. And so starting from the very, very beginning, God, the Trinity, means that God exists three in one. It's called triune. One God with three distinct persons. Now, we're never going to be able to fully understand this. And, and praise God that we, can, we do not serve a God that can fit inside of our minds. Otherwise, it would just be idolatry of some kind. An endless attempt has been made over thousands of years to try to understand how God can be three in one, but to be honest, they all fail miserably. Every attempt from using practical examples, some would say, you know, the Trinity is kind of like water. It can be three in one. Water can be a liquid. It can be frozen. It's a solid. And then you could boil it. It's a gas. So it's kind of like three in one. And well, that's a terrible example because those are all three different states of it. And it can't be all three at the same time. So that's not anything like God at all. Others would say, well, maybe it's kind of like an egg. You have the egg white, you have the egg yolk, and you have the shell. You have all three at the same time. That's kind of the way that God is. And, well, no, those are three different parts. They're not one thing. They're all three separate things that make up one thing. And they can be removed from one another and taken off of one another. So, no, a terrible example. Others would say, what about the role of a man or a woman? You could be a, a man can be a husband, a father, and a son. Those are three things they are at all at the same time. Again, a terrible example because those are just three different roles of a person. They're not three separate, distinct individuals. And so the truth is that God is infinite. God, who is way beyond our understanding. The best illustration to explain the Trinity I've used before, and it's this diagram here, which is also terrible, yet it's the best one I can find. right? And that is this perfectly clear as mud example that the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit. They are distinct, yet the Son is God, the Father is God, and God, the Holy Spirit is God. Right? perfectly clear in all ways right we could spend weeks years and people spend lifetimes studying this and still saying i don't know right with every attempt they can say but it's reality god is three in one and so for much of church history people talk about the doctrine of the trinity and they just leave it there because it's kind of confusing because it doesn't fit in our heads and then they add at the end of it, but you have to believe it, because if you don't believe this weird thing, then you're not really a Christian. So whether it makes sense or not, believe it, it's true, or else. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll believe that. And that's where most Christians live our whole lives. And I, I lived my life that way for decades. I was a Bible teacher. I traveled the world as a missionary, teaching on all these things, and just said, this is foundational teaching. Believe it. That's what matters. A dear friend of mine, uh, Emmanuel Muhammad, I guess many of you know him, hopefully he'll be out here again soon, he's a missionary we support, uh, a scholar, of Islamic scholar before giving his life to Christ, one of the top Islamic scholars on the globe, coming to Christ, he used to just ask me, James, why does the Trinity matter? And I'm like, because it does. And like, because it's who God is. But, but why? Why? Because he couldn't make sense. As a Muslim, coming from a Muslim background, it made no sense to me. He's like, why do you hold this weird teaching? Explain it to me. And I'm like, I, I can't. Um, but he was like, can I just reject it? Though? I'm like, no, because then you're not a Christian. He's like, but, but then explain it to me. Like, I'm like, I can't, but you have to. Like, at, at that time, it didn't make sense. And I'd been teaching the Bible for years, but a good Christian by that point. 
So people say it matters, but why? You can't understand it, just believe it. But, but does it matter? And the reality is it matters incredibly so. And it, for me, it wasn't until about a decade or so ago that it started making sense to me that it's not just suppositional truths that we have to say we believe to be a good Christian or to check some box. But the reality of God being triune is not just a stale doctrine that we check off in order to say we're a Christian. The, or, the Trinity is the very essence of who God is. That God is one but exists in three distinct persons who are actively engaging one another, loving one another, affirming one another. The Trinity shows us that before God even created the world, he has for all eternity been in a perfect, loving, life-giving fellowship among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. To be God, at his very essence, to be God is to be in fellowship, to be in relationship. The very essence of who God is, he is a loving God in relationship and fellowship. At a core level, that is who God is. An infinitely loving being in three persons who are in perfect fellowship and life-giving relationship with one another before anything else existed in all of eternity. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. This is where Jesus comes from. A place of perfect mutual love. And delight over one another. The Apostle John puts it this way in his letter in 1 John chapter 4. In verse 7 he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God. And here it is, because God is love. So love is who God is. And love comes from him. There are a few more foundational truths than that. And love can only exist in relationship to others. So when was God's love first on display? Was it when he made Adam and Eve? Let's check out what John has to say. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And he says, Father... I want these disciples whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory, Father, that you gave me because you loved me even before the creation of the world. We see that God the Father's love was directed towards Jesus. When? When is that? When he delighted him on the cross? When he did good things? No, it's before the creation of the world. When it was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existing before time, before eternity, in perfect loving relationship of delight and joy and creativity and wonder with one another. Jesus existed from eternity past in a beautiful, loving relationship among the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, lacking nothing. But it's not just a generic feeling of love towards one another. Scripture gives us many examples that this three-person God takes delight in one another, is pleased with one another, experiences joy with one another. They listen to one another, obey one another. For example, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when God speaks out over Jesus at his baptism, the Father God says this about the Son. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Another translation says, with whom I take great delight in. God the Father speaking over Jesus, declaring how much Jesus brings him pleasure. And this is before Jesus did anything that was be able to deserving of that in regards to his sacrifices. 
Or take a look at John chapter 12, and starting in verse 44, it says, Jesus shouted to the crowds. Again, if anyone thinks I shout too much, I'm just trying to be more like Jesus, right? Uh, so he says, if you trust me, you are trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. Jesus says, if you want to know what the Father is like, just look, like, just look at me. If you see me, you've seen the Father. What is God like? Just look at me. I am a perfect example of the Father, perfectly displaying and, and, and representing him to you. And Jesus says in verse 49, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who has sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And he's in this beautiful relationship. He says, I know his commands lead to eternal life. He trusts them. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. This beautiful mutual relationship of love, delight, trust, honor, obedience. Jesus makes it clear that he and the Father are one. And that to see the Son is to see the Father. Yet they are distinct persons. Jesus says he obeys what his Father tells him to do. And he listens to him. In so many places we can see this in Scripture. But the main point is the Father, the Son, the Spirit. They were never created but have always existed in perfect, loving fellowship of life and beautiful submission to one another and joy with each other. This is who God is. God is love. To be God is to be in relationship at the very essence of who He is. Before He was a creator... He was a father and a son in relationship. Now, many times, Christians, we can grow a little twisted in our understanding of God. Many times we see Jesus as the only one that we can relate to, that, we, that God is too big and maybe too distant, and, and some might even see him as too mean, that Jesus is that, that huggable Jesus that we want to hang out with, and so we just want to pray to Jesus because he seems more relatable. There's that great line in, in Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby, of the, the NASCAR driver, right? where he's praying at the dinner table, and he starts praying to tiny baby Jesus. His wife rebukes him and says, why are you doing that? He says, you can pray to whatever version of Jesus you like. I like the Christmas version of Jesus the best. And baby Jesus and his tiny little balled-up fist and his golden fleece diapers, he's like, that's the one I'm praying to. Now, we can laugh at the absurdity of it, but as Christians, that's often what we do. We, we kind of choose the version of Jesus. We make him in our own image. We're the one we like and we approach the most. And so we approach Jesus in the version that seems most huggable and lovable to us. And we oftentimes remove God as the distant blimp-like God who's further away. Because maybe we're uncomfortable with the Father. We don't like the fact that Jesus ever held a whip. <laughs> and so we find the version of him that we like the most. It's often said, you know, that I've heard people say many times that Jesus is the umbrella that saves us from the wrath of God. And I absolutely despise that statement. I hate that statement, that analogy. As oftentimes that's understood is that God is just angry with us and Jesus is the one, is the only reason God even loves us is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. I know so many Christians who still hold on to elements of that idea, who see the Father God as distant and angry and unapproachable, but that's not who God is. You want to know what God is like? Just look at Jesus, is what Jesus says. God is love. And he exists in this incredible dance of love with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And life, and love, and other-centeredness, other orientation. A couple quotes from some respected theologians. Um, first, D.A. Carson, he's the, the founder of the Gospel Coalition. 
And he says, what we have then, looking at the Trinity, is a picture of God whose love, even in eternity past, even before the creation of anything, is other-oriented. He is other, that is who God is, it's who Jesus is and where he came from, is the trinity of God with his incredible love, it is other-oriented. This is before humanity, towards one another. This is the essence of who God is, of reaching out and and loving others within themselves. It was beautiful and it was perfect. Then Dr. Baxter Kruger puts it this way, and I can't recommend this book enough, it's called The Great Dance, it's about 110 pages, you really don't need to read the fifth verse 50, Is the second 50 is kind of... Uh, repetition of that but he has some amazing stuff in here dr baxter says this he says the trinity says it's all about fellowship and fellowship means that god is not a lonely sad and depressed being as father son and spirit living in fellowship god is essentially and eternally very happy the father the son and the spirit live in conversation in a fellowship of free-flowing togetherness and sharing and delight, a great dance of shared life that is full and rich and passionate and creative and good and beautiful. Does anyone know this, God? Does anyone think that maybe they missed out on that day in Sunday school when they taught about this God or they somehow skipped right to kind of the angry God that Jesus protects us from? This is the reality of God before creation. He exists in perfect love and perfect fellowship, perfectly loving, full of life and joy and delight and creativity. Is this the God you know? And why does that matter? Because this is the God who creates mankind. This is where we come from. This is who Jesus is. So good, loving, kind, and other-oriented. This insanely relational Father God filled with love and light and peace and overwhelming joy. At some point in eternity past, he turns and he has a conversation with the other two, with, with the Father, with the Son, and the Spirit. And he says to it's recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Father says to the Spirit and to Jesus, and he says, Hey guys, he says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. This is where it gets so crazy. This is amazing. And in fact, everything I've shared the last 20 minutes is just to get to this point that this amazing God wants to share all that they have with us to expand their circle of fellowship, to include humanity, to let us share in the incredible life and relationship of joy and love and peace and connection that this is what we were created for. Not to be subjects of a distant ruler, but to be in fellowship with the creator of the cosmos and all of his children. Amen? This is the good news that Jesus came to bring. Not just that we are sinners who will go to heaven if we just believe the right stuff and avoid sin, but that God created us for life in him. Life with one another through Christ that we now have access to because of what Christ did when he came, of his life and his death on the cross. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they, meaning all of us, may have life and have it abundantly. I quote this one all the time. Because it's where Jesus describes why he came. Do we believe that? 
that Jesus came to give us life in abundance. Is God really that good? Or is this just some kind of easy believism gospel in some way? These are Jesus' own words. I want to give a couple more quotes from across the theological spectrum. This is not a, a new idea. It's just simple Orthodox Christianity. But Dr. Kim, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says this. It says, so a triune God created us. But he would not have created us to get the joy of mutual love and service because he already did that. He's saying God did not create us just so we would serve him and, and, and worship him. He was good. God already had those things in the Trinity. I know I grew up believing that the reason God creates is because he wanted more servants. He wanted more people to worship him. And he did all for that reason and that reason alone. That's why we exist. But see, what Tub Keller is saying is he already had that in the Trinity. In the Trinity, God was good. He had perfect fellowship. He had honor. He had love. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't sad. He wasn't depressed just waiting for more people to do more stuff for him. He was good in the Trinity. He already had that. Then he goes on to say, rather, God created us to share in his love and service. To share the joy and love that God knew within himself and to serve him. This is what we were created. To experience life in God. To share in the love that the Trinity had among themselves. To experience that life and then to pour that life into the world. Jonathan Edwards, the leader of the Great Awakening in the 17th century, he put it this way. He says, the ultimate reason that God creates is not to remedy some lack in God. And again, that's addressing that idea that the only reason God creates us is all the stuff he wants us to do, but to extend that perfect internal communication of the triune God's goodness and love. Taking that incredible fellowship of the Trinity that he had given that within themselves, he gave it to us. He says, God's joy and happiness and delight in divine perfections is expressed in creating us. God creates us to share his life and his joy and his love and his delight with us. He was good, he was fine, he was perfect, but he wanted to take what he had and exponentially multiply that into creation. Not because he was lonely or had some need for robots to worship him, but a desire to multiply exponentially the love that they had within one another. And this is where Jesus comes from. I have an overwhelming life of love. He comes to earth. And we proclaim Noel. He is born to redeem us. To pay the price for our sin. And restore us back again into this fellowship with God. Amen? This is why he does it. This is where he comes from. But... but I, I, Dr. Baxter Kruger, he goes on to explain the why of this in such a beautiful way in, in this book. He says this, he says, Now why does this God, this Father, this Son and Spirit create the universe? Why does this Father, Son, and Spirit create human beings, you, me, our children? Why does this Father, Son, and Spirit create the animals and birds and fish and flowers and the millions of beautiful things all around us? Why does this God create work and play and relationships and romance and sex and sports and laughter and food? What is the rhyme and reason behind all these things in creation? He says, when you start with the Trinity, it's the most obvious thing in the world. This Father, this Son, and this Spirit create 
to share what they have with us. The goal of the Trinity is inclusion. The purpose of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in creation is to draw us within the circle of their shared life so that we too can experience it with them. Come on. God's greatest longing before creation was to take that incredible life that they experienced within the Trinity and exponentially multiply it into creation, into us, to receive, to be part of, and for us to pour into the world. Not just individually, because it's not just about me and God, but as a body, as a creation, that together we pour it out. His longing is for all of creation, all of us, to be in fellowship with him. This is his greatest longing of all, that we are his children, and he wants to be with us. Amen? I want to look again at one of my favorite passages that I often use, and I probably quote it short of anything, as much as anything, maybe except John 10.10, but... It's such a critical text in prayer because it's the last thing that Jesus prays before he goes and is crucified. It's also, as I've shared many times, the only place where Jesus prays directly for us today where we don't have to worry about context, we don't have to worry about history or anything else. He's literally praying for us today, right? We can go right to application. Jesus 17, John 17, Jesus prays this. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Verse 21. I pray that they, that's us, will all be one. He says, Father, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they, that's us, be in us. See this language. Jesus is saying, I want for us today, for us to live in fellowship with the Father and the Son, to the same degree that Jesus experiences life with the Father, says that's what he wants us to experience with him and with one another. He says, and may they be in us, the world will believe you sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Why? So that they, that's us, may be one just as we are one. We experience the same unity the Father and the Son experience. 23, I am in them, Father, you are in me. May they, that's us, experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent them, or sent me, and that, Father, you love them, that's us, just as much as you love me. Do we believe that? For so many years, I just read that, it just sounded like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Something about God loves a God of love, he loves people, and we're supposed to love others, and some idealized version of unity that will never be realized. And it was, just, it was just information. If you want to have a good quiet time, we finished up our practicing prayer, but the next couple of weeks, just a couple of times a week, every day, just read through that passage a couple of times, just meditate upon it. There's no passage I've read more. I mean, I don't know how many thousands of times I've read through those verses. And every single time I'm brought to a place of wonder and awe that that's actually what Jesus is praying for. His penultimate prayer is we would experience life in him the same way he experiences it with his Father. We would also experience that with one another. That we together would share the same relationship with the Father that Jesus has. We would be in them in the same way that Jesus is in the Father. That's what he created us for. To experience his life. His beauty. His abundance. And that means that everything he asks of us, because this life, well, it's not always abundant. There are some trials. It's hard sometimes to 
Not pursue them, our broken desires and disordered desires, but everything he asks of us in obedience and discipleship is geared towards increasing our capacity to become the people he created us to be. To give us freedom to love the way that he loves us. Everything he asks us to lay down, to repent of, to walk away from is to give us more freedom to love the way we were created to love. To not have impurities in the gas tank that prevent the engine from running fully or beautifully. Any sacrifice he asks of us is to enable us to more freely love the way that he loves us and the way he's called us to love others without any hindrances. True freedom is only found to the degree that we walk in, in, in the way that we were created for. The more we walk in the ways we were created for, the more freedom we have. The more we follow our own broken desires, the less freedom and the less joy, the less wonder, the less love we experience and the less we give to others. And sadly, I've met a lot of miserable Christians over the years who aren't experiencing this life of joy. I'm sure maybe you've met a lot of them too. Maybe you are one right now. I've been one of them many times in my life. And again, it's my misery is usually directly connected to the degree that I lose sight of what I was created for. Lose sight of the reality of Jesus and his longing for me. We can easily turn this incredible gift of fellowship and joy with the most amazingly loving being in the whole cosmos and we could turn it into a, some type of, of trying to appease a, a, a distant God of some kind, where it feels that we never do good enough or we're never doing enough. And so many Christians can turn this amazing relationship in life with God and one another that we were intended for, and they turn it into a transaction where it primarily focuses, am I saved or not? Am I going to heaven or not? Well, if I said the sinner's prayer that I'm saved, and, and phew, I guess I can now live my life the way I want it to. And everything's just about is there, is how much sin is in my life? Am I going to heaven or not? Am I doing enough or not? And we lose sight of Jesus. We lose sight of the reason we were created. It just becomes a struggle and a trial to try and do more, believe the right stuff with guilt and condemnation or judgmentalism and pride. But that's not what we were created for. Jesus created us that we could be with him. Not just when we get to heaven. Not just then and there, but here and now. Right now, right here, to live out this reality. Jesus did not come and say the kingdom of God is coming when you die and go to heaven. What did Jesus say? The kingdom of God is here. It's here. I've brought it. I've restored it to you. It's still coming. It's not here in its fullness, but it's it's here. Why? So we can share the life the Trinity has among themselves. With him and with one another. Because God is love. Amen? Some of you need to hear that again. God is love. And he's created us to share in his love and for us to share that love with others. And this honestly is the message that changed my life when I began to truly understand what it means to be a child of God. I'm not talking about back when I accepted Christ when I was eight years old. I mean like 11 years ago. After being a missionary, traveling the world for 14 years or so by that point, leading Bible schools, leading hundreds if not thousands of people to Christ, and training thousands of pastors and missionaries across the world and who God is, 
the Lord finally hit me with this. I spent my life just trying to be a soldier for the Lord. Trying to earn his favor, trying to prove to him that I was good enough to deserve his love and all the rest of it. Did everything I could, just go to the hardest places, the most unreached place in the world, wherever people thought I was convinced I would die an early martyr's death before the age of 30 as I just lived my life sold out for Jesus. And then it was just over a decade ago when I was sitting in a, a room and we were singing a worship song. And the song, the word of the song was, Jesus, I just want to sit here. Where is it? I, There's no place I'd rather be than right here in your presence, O oh Lord. That was the words. I remember as I sang the words to that song, I was just singing it like we often do. You don't even realize what you're thinking. You're just saying words. And as I'm singing it, all of a sudden I start thinking. And I realize, I don't believe a single word of this. There are a million other places I'd rather be than sitting here in this namby-pamby worship service, talking about my feelings and how much I want to sit in the presence of God. Like, reality is, I don't enjoy this. I don't want to be here. I want to be out serving them. I'd rather be out work at the time I was working with gangsters and prostitutes and murderers and rapists and all these other people. And like, I want to work with those guys. That's where I'd rather be. I have a lot more fun than them than just kind of sitting with God and talking about how I'm doing and how he's doing. And that, I think it was just a few minutes after that, I remember just going to the Lord and realizing, God, I actually don't enjoy being with you at all. I don't actually care about being a son. I just want to be a soldier. I didn't understand his love at all. I saw him like a king that I had to serve to try to earn enough, to do enough, to please. And I slowly began to realize that how broken that understanding is of who God is. That Jesus is longing more than anything else in all the world isn't for me to be a soldier, but to be a child. Yes, I get to serve him, but it's out of love, of receiving that love. Not just running ahead and trying to have the right ideas, trying to prove other people why they're right or wrong, but from a place of sonship, of being a child of God, of being fully loved, knowing how accepted I am, even in the midst of my brokenness, and seeking to experience his life and his love increasingly as I pour that into the lives of others. My greatest longing since then. My, every day it's my longing is to become more and more aware of that reality of his love and increasingly live the life that he's created me for. That I would be a bearer of his love and his light to the world and help other people experience the life they were created for. Right? Hence why I'm in this profession. But within any, any role that there is, whether I'm a doctor, a lawyer, a janitor, a teacher, a technician, an engineer. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, right? I don't know who needs to hear this message again. Somebody's like, James, haven't you preached stuff like this before? Yep. And I'm just going to keep preaching it. Some of you may be miserable or joyless this morning. Some of you may be every morning. Striving to appease a distant, blimp-like God. Out there, and it's, you're just exhausted. You're weary. You're feeling unworthy of his love this morning. Please hear these words from God to you this morning. His love for you is greater than you could ever comprehend because God is love. He loved you when you were a broken sinner. He's not waiting with his arms crossed, just waiting for you to get your life back in line to bring you into to, to, to his arms, to, to show you his love. 
He's not saying to you that when you finally break that addiction to alcohol or when you finally stop looking at porn or when you finally break up with your girlfriend and stop sleeping with him or her or or, or when you finally forgive that person, then I will welcome you home and shower you with my love. No, that's not how God's work. His love for us is unconditional. There is nothing we could ever do that could cause him to love us any more or any less than he does right now. If you were living a perfect, sin-free life and every single perfect thing in your life was done for the sake of others, God couldn't love you more than he loves you right now in the midst of brokenness and pain and weariness. Because God is love. And his love is for us. And through receiving his love, he will enable us and empower us to break free of those addictions and those broken patterns and disordered desires that weigh us down. He will empower us to experience more of his love and experience more of his life as we step free and repent and and walk away from all of that brokenness and pain and things that cause such pain to us and to others. Some of you here here this morning, maybe you've walked away from the Lord. Or, Or maybe there's some of you here that have never really known him fully to begin with. And even as I'm sharing on this, it's not because of my words, but the Spirit is moving and there's a nagging in your heart right now for connection, for intimacy, for love that you've been seeking out throughout much of your life and wherever you've gone, it's taken. Maybe you walked away and you're watching online. You know that you've, you've walked away for a while and you feel that nagging within your heart right now and it's, you're, you're feeling kind of that sense in your gut and your spirit. And it's there because you were created to be loved by your creator. It's what we literally were created for. There's a reason that longing never goes away because it's literally wired into our creation that we're created to be loved by God and to be part of fellowship and relationship with him. And apart from that, it will never be filled. No amount of alcohol, no amount of lust, no amount of anything we do will ever fill that space. No money, no power, no success will ever fill that space because we were created by a loving, infinitely loving God to be part of a fellowship with him and his body. And there's a reason that you're here today or the reason you're watching this right now online. It's because you need to hear this right now, that God is love and he's calling you home. If you're someone who's been wounded by someone in the church or by a church, I just want to say I'm so sorry. So incredibly sorry. There's so many out there that have come near and have walked away because of things that have happened as a result of the church, or maybe it's their own sin, maybe it's other things, but sadly, many of God's children don't actually understand how good and loving God is. And so, so many Christians don't accurately reflect God's goodness to the world because they don't understand it for themselves. And if that's you today, I just ask that you would step, take a step today to open your heart to God. In fact, I just want to take a minute, if you're watching online, you're here in person, just to respond to that. I'm just going to pray, and if you're feeling that tug in your heart, just pray with me. Just say, Jesus, I don't understand how it all works. But I can tell that you're drawing me. I've known it for a while. And I'm tired of fighting on my own. Trying to fill, tired of trying to fill that hole with everything else the world has to offer. 
hurting. I know I need you, Jesus. I want to turn my life over to you today. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want your love. I want your abundant life. I want to break free from my brokenness and my pain and experience you. Thank you, Lord. If you just prayed that prayer, please come and talk to someone at some point. Also, in two weeks, on December uh, 17th, we're going to be pulling out the baptismal. Uh, we have a baptism happening, and if you, you want to get baptized, that some of you feel the Lord's kind of putting upon your life as a thing, it's time to take a stand or confess that, and you want to confess it before others, please let us know. We'd love to, to have other people jump in. There may also be some of you who have been just weary recently. I just want to let you know that God's love is no less for you this morning. He tells us in Psalm 51, 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. For some of you here today that have been Christians for years or decades, you're like, I'm not experiencing that life. Reflect again on him this morning, on who he is. Ask him to remind you of the joy of your salvation in the midst of whatever it is that you're, you're, you're journeying with right now. And invite this God of love to show his love to you here, right now, in this moment. Amen. Let's pray as we close. God, you are so, so good. Lord, I know this is a, a basic message. But Holy Spirit, I pray you would break through to each of our hearts. Lord, wherever we're at, whatever we're wrestling with, may you affirm to each person here and listening online how much you love them, Lord. How from before creation, God, you longed for us to be with you. That you took the life and beauty of your fellowship among yourselves and you shared it with us. Lord, break us out of our fogs if we're wrestling with it, Lord. May you shower us with your love this morning, Lord Jesus. We want to receive from you today. Speak out your words of life, beauty, and love over your children today, Lord Jesus. Help us to see you a little more clearly. We looked at last week as Paul prays, Lord, I pray over each of us that may we grasp how deep wide and long and high is the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord.